As you said, my name's Aaron. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, um, I would love to do that at some point. I'm married to Michaela, who's sitting over there, and I'm currently a student at Cedarville in my last year. So I'm thankful for this opportunity today to be able to share what God's put on my heart with you. Eventually, we'll be in Hebrews 7, so if you want to turn there to get started, that'd be good. We all long for acceptance. From the time we're young, we look for approval from others. Look at me, Dad, or look at me, Mom. Maybe you've heard your own son or daughter say these things to you as they look for affirmation. Or maybe you remember standing in a line as you're waiting to be picked to play some sport at recess. You have those lies in the back of your head saying to you, you're not good enough. Uh, nobody wants you on their team. You're trying to fight those lies uh, because in the end, if, if you're not picked, you might as well have been rejected. I think we all, even though we're different, have that desire to look for approval from somebody. And ultimately that makes sense because God has put that desire in our hearts because it's found in him. He is ultimately the one that we should be looking to for acceptance and approval. And the issue is that because of our sin, there's separation between us and God. Even though we long for him in the deepest part of our souls, we look to other things to bring that same acceptance and approval. And we all know what it's like to give ourselves over to other things, to look for them for satisfaction, and ultimately figure out that they're not what we thought they were, and they're empty. And the Bible shows us that to be in God's presence, the one who designed us in a way that we look to him for acceptance and approval, we have to be perfect. And it was like that at one point. If we look back to the garden in Genesis 1, or even after God created everything, he said it was good. Not only good, but he said it was very good. And when the Bible uses this word good, it means perfect. It doesn't use the word good in the same way that we typically use it in day-to-day -day conversation, usually meaning all right, or even better than all right. The Bible says good, it means there's nothing bad about it. It's perfect. In Mark 10, 18, a man comes up to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, Jesus was teaching him that no one is good based on their deeds or what they do, but it is God alone who is good in who he is. And at one point, as I said already, everything was good. Adam and Eve, the first of creation, actually dwelled with God. They lived in him. They literally dwelled in his presence. But then we see in Genesis 3, after God commands them not to eat of this tree, he gives them this good command to protect them and keep them safe. And they choose to go their own way. They choose to exchange the glory and honor that God bestowed on them, being created in, him, in his image, they exchanged that for their own. In Genesis 3.21, we see God's response to this. 
The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. You see, because God still desired relationship with them, even though he had to separate himself from them because of their sin, he still provided a provision, a sacrifice for them so that he could have relationship and cover their shame. And then much later after this, if we jump forward to Genesis 12, we see that God desired to call a people to himself. And he did this through one man named Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham or a promise to him. And he told him that through this one man, Abraham, God was going to bless every nation of the earth. And to make this promise sure, there was a sacrifice made. God desired relationship with his creation. And then later on, as God continued to communicate to his people, even though he couldn't communicate to them directly, he used other means to do so. He chose men who were called priests, who were even set apart from their communities. And these priests made sacrifices to mediate their presence between God and the people. And these sacrifices, even though they didn't get rid of the sinful condition of the people, and they just covered it, what they did do was point forward to an even greater sacrifice that was going to come. One from a different priesthood and a different covenant. One that would not clothe them in animal skins, but in the righteousness of God. So with these things, we see that the Bible shows us our deeds can't bring us into God's presence. Our deeds can't fix what separated us. So I, I ask for us to think about church. Are we living like they do? Are we living like our deeds bring us closer to God? Because it's easy to think that when we're doing good things that we're closer to God, but the reality is there's only one thing that can bring us close to God, and that thing is outside of ourselves. It's a sacrifice in Jesus. And we might even think that we are good people because we have the approval of others. We might not recognize how deep this condition is seated within us because other people would say we're good. Human approval does not show us we are close to God because it is not our deeds that draw us near to God. And that's all other humans see. The issue is that when I look at you or you look at me, you can see what I'm doing and I can put on this act, but in reality, deep down, I can be doing those things for the wrong reason, because of sin. So God sees our hearts. God sees our hearts and he knows that there's an issue there. And we need something outside of us that can draw us near to God, and that is Jesus. It requires a sacrifice. And Hebrews 7, what we're looking at today, shows us that Jesus is the perfect high priest through whom we draw near to God. We need Jesus as our priest, because no matter how much good we do, we will never reach perfection, God's moral standard. And that is what's required to draw near to him. We learn this from the former law that God gave to the Israelites. And the old covenant traded death of man that was required on behalf of sin for the death of an animal so that they could draw near. 
Now, God doesn't like destroying things. He's not just some angry God who sits up there on a throne waiting to destroy anything he can get his hands on. No, God actually doesn't like doing this. In Psalm 51:16, David says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. And then in Hebrews 10, the author says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. The old system doesn't make the worshipers perfect. But you see, it wasn't the sacrifices themselves that satisfied God's wrath. It was their faith in the God of the sacrifices. Animal sacrifices prepared the worshipers to see what God was going to do in Christ. Now, with all this background information about the sacrificial system, hopefully that helps us get into this world of the author of Hebrews. Hebrews 7 speaks of Melchizedek, priesthoods, covenants, and Jesus. Ultimately, in this chapter, we see that Jesus guaranteed a better covenant for us by coming in the order of Melchizedek. Once again, Jesus guaranteed a better covenant for us by coming in the order of Melchizedek. And why this matters for you and I, what I want us to leave here knowing, rejoicing in, and worshiping in, is that Jesus is the perfect high priest through whom we draw near to God. So let's read Hebrews 7, starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how this great man, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave him a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham, but this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from whom no one has ever served at the altar. 
for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus, help us to see the beauty in your text. God, thank you so much for making a way for us to come and worship you. Help us to recognize that even this time now is a time for us to worship, to see your beauty, to see that you are a great high priest. God, I'm reminded again that the only way that I can even speak to you right now is because Jesus has made a way for me to do so. God, thank you that we're all a part of your family. Thank you that we can love you and know you and come into your presence. Amen. So there's three things that I want to talk about from the text. The first is that we needed a priest from the line of Melchizedek. The second, Jesus will remain our priest forever. And third, Jesus is the perfect priest we needed. So first, we needed a priest from the line of Melchizedek. And that is because the Levitical priesthood could not make anyone perfect. Verse 11 says, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. His point is that the former priesthood did not make them perfect because under the former priesthood, they were still under this old covenant. And we already saw how this old covenant did not make us perfect. In fact, it showed us how imperfect we are. The need for this new covenant, this new law, revealed the need for a priest, not from the line of Levi, but from the line of Melchizedek. And Jesus came in the line of Melchizedek. So all this talk about Melchizedek, we may be asking ourselves, who really is Melchizedek? Um, we see him here in this chapter, but we don't really talk about him much in church 
or even see them much in the scriptures. So I just wanted to go over that real quick. Genesis 14 is the first time we see Melchizedek mentioned in the scriptures. And it is there that he is called priest of most high God. And then we see Abraham make offerings to him, which is strange because you would expect it to be the other way around. And then Melchizedek goes on to bless Abraham, which is also strange because we think of Abraham as this great figure from scripture. And then this random character that's inserted named Melchizedek is now blessing Abraham. And we saw at the beginning of this chapter that is the inferior that is blessed by the superior. The next place we see him is in Psalm 110, where the psalmist is saying of the Messiah that was to come, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then in verse 2 of this chapter 7 of our text today, we see that his name means king of righteousness. So up to this point about this Melchizedek, we know that he is a king of righteousness, a priest. Abraham made offerings to him. He blesses Abraham and that the Messiah would be under his priesthood. So even though it might be a surprise to have this new priest under a new line of Melchizedek, we saw already back in Psalm 110 that this was to be expected of the Messiah. And the text shows us that Jesus did not descend from the Levitical line, and this is good news. Verse 16 says, who, talking about this priest, has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus was not a priest based on the line he was born under, but by God's oath. We see this in the text where it's witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this isn't just any priesthood, it's a never-ending priesthood. Look back at verse 3 of this chapter. He's talking about Melchizedek, and he uses him as a type. He says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And we know Melchizedek was just a person. We know that he came and went like every other human. But the author picks up this character and uses him to point towards the Christ, a new priest whose reign would never end, who would actually live forever. When I say type, I mean a shadow. Melchizedek wasn't who we looked to to be the great high priest. No, he pointed forward to the great high priest who was to come, Jesus. Jesus' priesthood in the light of Melchizedek introduced a new and better hope. So what is this hope that we have in this new priesthood? In this chapter, we see that this, our author is hoping to draw near to God. The hope of this author is drawing near to God. In the old law, this old covenant, it showed us how unworthy we are to be in God's presence. It showed us how great our sin is and how separated we are from God because he is perfect. And you see the Pharisees, who we see mentioned throughout the Gospels, they, they didn't get this. 
The Pharisees truly thought that they kept the law to the point that God looked at them and said, you're righteous. But then when Jesus came, he confronted them. He said that they weren't. He showed them in the Sermon on the Mount that God's moral standard was so much higher than they could even reach. So this, this question of desiring God's presence, the thing that our author is looking for here, it raises the question for us, is that our greatest hope? Is that our greatest hope? Do we desire God's presence more than anything? Do we desire God's presence right now? Is that why we're here this morning? Is it, are we here to worship and be in God's presence with his family? Do we desire God's presence more than our phones? Do we desire God's presence more than a significant other? Maybe even food at times. The reality is that God wants us to desire him more than anything. That is what it means to give our lives completely over to him. It is complete surrender. And I, I have to ask the question, have you done that this morning? And if you haven't, what's stopping you? Because Jesus has made a way for us to draw near to God. The second point, Jesus will remain our priest forever. And this is because of God's promise and because of his resurrection to eternal life. So first, looking at God's promise. Back in chapter 6, verse 13, we read that when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. God had no one greater to swear by, so he swore by himself. And here we see another oath being made by God. This is in verse 21. This one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And he's talking about his son, Jesus. So if God made a promise to Abraham, and he was going to keep it because of who he was, his character, how much more will he keep this promise to his one and only son? This promise guaranteed a better covenant. In verse 22, we see this. Jesus, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So what's better about this covenant? Well, we saw previously in verse 18, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. So if this new and better hope is introduced through whom we draw near to God, what's better about it is it allows us to draw near to God. It helps us, it makes us perfect. It's the only way we can draw near to God. Perfection can be obtained through this new covenant. And I don't mean that we become perfect people in the sense that we never sin or mess up anymore. We all know that but it makes us perfect because it changed our identity. Our identity is no longer found in ourselves, but it is found in Christ to the point that when God looks at us, he sees his son and he says, righteous. We are declared righteous because of the son. Secondly, Jesus will remain our priest forever because of his resurrection to eternal life. Read Hebrews 7, 23, and 24 with me. 
The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Christ's resurrection showed that he is going to remain our priest forever. He is the only one that could have been a priest in this line of Melchizedek, and he is the only one that will ever be a priest in this line. In fact, from this point forward, Jesus is the only legitimate priest, period. He's the only one that can mediate between us and God. Jesus Christ sits enthroned as a kingly priest, and his rule and his priesthood are forever. The third thing to see in this text is Jesus is the perfect high priest we needed. Look at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I think two lies are common in our lives. The first one being, I've messed up too bad. Maybe you sinned and you think, God no, God no longer is going to use me. I've messed up too bad. I'm past the point of forgiveness. And then a second lie I think we could fit into are, I'm doing just fine on my own. Maybe we forget how much we need God. Or maybe we never thought we needed him in the first place or still haven't recognized our need for God. To the first group, those who think they're messed up too bad to draw near to God, I'd say to you, if, if we, like the tax collector, cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner, and we draw near to God through Christ, he will forgive us because he has made a way for us. But if we're in that second group and we think we're just doing fine on our own and we don't need Jesus, you're just like the Pharisees were. And God will judge you according to your works. And we've talked about already how this is horrible news because our works can't get us to perfection. They can't get us to the point we need to be at to be in right relationship with God. Only his son does that. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, but if you don't put your hope in Christ's sacrifice, the only thing he can judge you by is yourself. And that is a dreadful place to be because God's wrath is great. It will not fail. Through Christ, we imperfect people are able to draw near to a perfect God. Without him, we would be consumed. But God loves his people. We saw this even from the Old Testament, that he instituted a priesthood so he could communicate to them. And if this Levitical priesthood allowed them to do so, how much more will Christ's priesthood? How much more a priest, which we see in verse 20, 26, is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This priest has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever.
You see, human priests make sacrifices for a specific people, but only the Son can atone for the sins of the whole world. And if the blood of an animal could temporarily atone for the sins of these people, how much more the precious blood of our Savior? We might be thinking, but my sin is too great. You don't know what I've done. His sacrifice is sufficient for you. You say, I've messed up again too badly. I've stewarded my finances horribly. I told God I wouldn't do that again. His sacrifice is sufficient. Well, I've, you don't know what I've been through. It's, I've blown up on my spouse again. I, I was angry and I, I let myself go and his sacrifice is sufficient. No matter what you've done, if you turn to Christ and repent and ask for forgiveness, his sacrifice is sufficient for you. You see, after we sin, the enemy, Satan, is the first one that will come to us and condemn us and say, God doesn't want to use you anymore. You're too far gone. You're too messed up. No sin you commit is more powerful than the blood of Christ. The washing of Christ's blood extinguished every flame of sin that burns within us. Yes, for all of us who call upon his name. We proclaim together, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. To conclude, Jesus is the perfect high priest through whom we draw near to God. We saw in this text that we needed a high priest from the line of Melchizedek, a better line, a better priesthood. Jesus will remain our priest forever. And Jesus is the perfect high priest we needed. These truths, they should change the way we live. So how, then, should we live? How should we respond to these truths that we see here? Well, I would say, draw near to God through Christ. We saw in Hebrews 4.16, 4, it says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So what is our time of need? The first, draw near to God through Christ when we sin or when we're convicted of our sin. Whether for the first time we're just realizing we need God's grace and forgiveness because we're sinful or we've been following the Lord for a long time now and we once again are recognizing our struggle with sin. Remind your souls that he offered up himself, the only sacrifice that could atone for your sins. Verse 25 tells us he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And this just makes me think about my own life. And I say this to you because I need it to hear it myself, but to us who know Christ, Stop trying to atone for your own sins. 
You see, I think it's easy that when we sin, when we mess up again in a way that we promised God we wouldn't, we start to think that we need to do all these things to make up for it before we draw near to him again. We feel dirty and messed up, so we think we need to read the Bible or, or pray more to make up for it. But when we do those things, when we try to make up for our sin with our works, all we're doing is trying to clean up our mess with a filthy rag. It won't do anything. Only Christ can cleanse your sins. So look to him. Because the reality is, your works aren't what gave you access to God in the first place, and they're never going to be what gives you access to God's presence. His son does. The second time I think it's important for us to draw near to God is when we're grieving. I know with a room this big, full of people, somebody in here is grieving. Maybe a lot of us. With so much loss and brokenness in our world, it's just a constant reality we're going to face. Psalm 34:18 tells us, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. How great to know that we have a God who cares for us when we are broken and grieving. Maybe we're grieving because of loss or maybe because of our own sin, but we can know that we can draw near to our God who loves us and cares for us deeply. And lastly, draw near to God through Christ and worship. If there's anything this text we read this morning should do, in all of scripture, it should cause us to marvel at Christ, his perfection, his authority and beauty. He is wonderful. He made intercession for us so that we could worship him. It is a gift to be able to worship. And when I look at verse 26, how could we not marvel at a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens? What a great high priest to worship. So let us now praise the Lord that he made a way through Christ for us to draw near to him so that we can worship him. As we th sing these songs, let us be reminded of all he's done for us, and let us truly worship him. So pray with me. Lord, I, I do just thank you so much um, just for the opportunity to be able to worship you in this time. God, I think one of the most beautiful things in the world is to worship with your church. Um, seeing people just fully recognize their true king, savior, high priest, God. You're the only thing on this earth that is really worth worshiping. I pray that we would all recognize that this morning. Help us to not be distracted by all the other things we have going on, our, on in our lives, but to just worship, just sit and worship you. Thank you, Jesus.